Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published quarterly by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, premiering March 20th, 2015, we'll be speaking with Yosa de Volk about his article in the winter 2015 edition, Redrawing Europe's Map on the Rise of the Right and Other Key Shifts in Voting Patterns. We'll also spotlight other top stories in the issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the website West Wing Reports. Well, it was the very last thing the Obama administration wanted for Benjamin Netanyahu to do so much better than expected in Tuesday's election. Now, the Israeli prime minister, very much a thorn on the president's side, will survive the Obama administration itself. The contempt and bitterness that each man has for the other has been on full display yet again this week. There has been no contact between the two leaders, the White House saying that the president may call in a few days. That chilly message aside, American support for Israel could be hurt. U.S. officials now hint that it may no longer automatically veto anti-Israeli resolutions at the United Nations and will continue to press for a Palestinian state, something that Netanyahu rejects. But the rift can only be so deep, Israel is the top recipient of American aid that will almost certainly continue, and both governments will, sources say, continue to maintain strong military and intelligence ties. Netanyahu's come-from-behind wind comes as nuclear talks between the U.S., Five other world powers and Iran reach a climax. The Israeli prime minister warns that Obama will get a bad deal that will preserve Iran's ability to develop nuclear weapons. Obama denies this and maintains that he'd rather have no deal than a bad one. Washington wants a 10-year deal with Tehran to further slow Iran's nuclear progress. Such a deal, the White House says, would enhance monitoring of Iranian activities and give the West enough time to exercise a military option if deemed necessary. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. I think most things favor a corporation in Europe focused on commerce, environmental issues and things like that, uh, but oppose the fundamental idea of an ever closer union, which we have experienced for the past uh, years, beginning to engage also in our, in our social um, uh, benefits, in our foreign affairs policies and many other issues which have, uh, which have passed the limit of uh, the sovereignty that most Danes, I believe, feel is necessary. And therefore, they now favor that uh, the union as such changes behavior, changes focus, and that, I think, is the, uh, the, uh, the outcry tonight. Morten Messerschmidt of the right-wing, Eurosceptic, anti-immigrant Danish People's Party won the biggest personal vote in Denmark's Euro election last year. Just one sign of rising populist power and shifting election patterns across the continent. The factors fueling this change and its implications for people and policies throughout Europe are analyzed for a featured article in the new issue of World Policy Journal. The author is Jose de Vaux, a Dutch electoral geography researcher with a background in anthropology, development studies, and international relations. And to say more about his research, I spoke with him earlier. Jose de Vaux, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much. Remind us where in Europe the populist right has made its most dramatic gains. 
Well, we see this uh, writers' populist parties uh, emerging in a lot of countries. But when we look at the uh, the most recent uh, European-wide uh, elections last uh, June, we saw the the highest scores for these parties in uh, Denmark, the United Kingdom, um, and France, where they all topped uh, around 25, 26 percent of the vote. Um, but in other elections, we see also uh, very uh, high percentages in Austria, the Netherlands, uh, Norway, Switzerland, and uh, also in Eastern Europe countries like uh, Hungary, uh, also in Greece. So it's uh, it's quite European-wide uh, wide, uh, theme on the moment. And within these countries, you say the rise of the right is happening both in traditionally conservative areas and some former bastions of the left. Give us an example of that. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. Um, a lot of people uh, studying uh, politics, they are uh, a little bit struggling about uh, are these parties really rightist or leftist? Well, they are both. Um, and they are attracting uh, voters in both kinds of areas. They are strong in uh, suburbs or exurbs of the larger cities um, where more affluent people are living, but they feel threatened by uh, immigrants that are also moving uh, to the suburbs. Um, these parties are strong in areas with a lot of uh, small business, like fishing villages, for example. Um, these are all areas that voted on the uh, more traditional uh, rightist parties in the past and are now changing to uh, the populist parties. But we also see these kind of uh, new parties um, uh, making large gains in former uh, industrial areas where that were very leftist in the part. Um, where uh, people are also uh, feel threatened by immigrants, um, also by people from Eastern Europe who want to uh, to work for cheaper in uh, industries. Um, so, yeah, for example, in France, we see that the industrial north that was very leftist in the part in the past has gone to the Front National, but also the the more rightist uh, Mediterranean coast. So uh, it's an interesting combination. It's a little bit different uh, from the Tea Party in. Uh, the United States. It's uh, it's a combination of both anti-government sentiment and on the other side, uh, also a lot of people who uh, yeah, will feel a little bit nostalgic about the period that uh, that the government did just more for the people. On so, the divisive issue of immigrants, how much of the building antagonism to them is based on their economic cost and government support? Uh, versus their competition for jobs, versus the fear of terrorism, as we saw in Paris, or, or just discomfort with those who are different among Europeans already uncomfortable with their own conditions? I think all these kinds of things are important. It's just uh, the combination uh, that people feel just threatened in their way of life. And, uh, yeah, sometimes they are blackmailing immigrants, but, uh, yeah, sometimes the European Union, there are a lot of things. It's also, uh, there is a gap between um, the lower educated people and uh, the elites with uh, very cosmopolitan, uh, very pro-multiculturalism. And um, yeah, the, the, uh, the issues are fight out about immigration, but the conflict is more between uh, elite versus uh, uh, the rest of the population. You made an interesting point about the importance of lifestyle in uh, in these shifts and in changing views. Yeah, um, in the past, um, the party landscapes were somewhat uh, somewhat easier to understand in Europe. Um, you had uh, the left and the right. Uh, the left was for the poor, wanted a big government, and on the right it was the other way around. But more and more we see that uh, the education level and lifestyles of people are getting more important. 
Um, for example, in the Netherlands, where I uh, work and study, um, when you see po people working around, you often uh, see immediately what kind of voter this uh, could be. Um, they are living in different neighborhoods. They, they eat even different food, drive different cars, or no car at all. Um, they, uh, well, both are... Uh, both do meet immigrants, but they are looking totally different to the same kind of situation. Uh, some people are more uh, more globalized, um, globally oriented, more multicultural. Uh, other people are not, and yeah, that's it's not only because they feel threatened in their job or something like that. It's just something that is uh, already in their mind before they even meet uh, an immigrant. And uh, it's very interesting to, uh, in my own town, you see a clear division between areas that are voting on uh, a green leftist party and on uh, a rightist populist party. Uh, you see then that the uh, the average income of these both neighborhoods, it, it's almost the same, but it looks completely different and people are voting completely different. Uh, just Their houses look different, the, the kind of furniture, the kind of clothing, it's just... Uh, yeah, it's more and more it's getting a culture war, the same as you see uh, in the United States. Besides changing minds, are people also changing actually where they live and vote to be more with people like themselves and their changing views? Well, it happens both. Uh, people are changing their vote because of changing circumstances. Um, that a lot of people feel more threatened by uh, issues that are going on. But yeah, you see, also see that kind of spatial uh, sorting of people that uh, I, I uh, already told the uh, example of my own hometown of Nijmegen in the Netherlands, um, that you see people who have, for example, $200,000 uh, to buy a house. Uh, people voting on a green left uh, party, they make just another choice. They want to live in a different neighborhood as people voting for the rightist populist party. Um, the green lefties, uh, they want to live in a, an unwalkable neighborhood. They go by bike. Uh, they put some uh, some vines on their buildings. Um, while uh, on the other side of town, the rightist populist uh, voter, they, he wants a bigger house on, uh, on the edge of town uh, with his car uh, in front of the house. His uh, garden is paved. So, uh, yeah, people are sorting out themselves. They want to live uh, close to people who have a very similar lifestyle. Well, let's go beyond your own town. Talk about the divisions between city and countryside in terms of right and left and how the pattern is not always the same across the continent. Start with the differences you found in Germany, France, and England. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to compare the different countries in Europe. Um, in, uh, in countries like uh, Germany or the United Kingdom, um, also in the United States, also in my own uh, country, the Netherlands, uh, we see that cities are very leftist and the countryside is, uh, on most places, quite rightist. Um, in the cities, uh, we find uh, immigrants, we find uh, working poor, we find uh, industrial workers, and also uh, a very leftist elite uh, that's very highly educated. Um, but when we look to, uh, for example, um, southern Spain, uh, patterns are somewhat different. In, uh, while in Western European countries, like the same in the United States, uh, the, the higher middle class has always migrated out of the city. They uh, went to the suburbs. 
But in uh, Southern Europe, um, people with a high income tend to stay within the core of the city. They, uh, um, the, the lifestyles are very different there. People uh, want to walk uh, around at late in the city instead of sitting in their own uh, garden. So what we see there is that the city centers are very rightist and very rich, while the peripheries of the cities are very leftist, and especially in southern Spain, the countryside is uh, extremely leftist, even uh, communist. Uh, and a similar situation we do see in uh, Norway and Sweden, where uh, also the cities are more rightist than the countryside. It, this is because the industry uh, is traditionally based in very small towns, uh, very far away uh, from the capitals. Just a brief break here to say this is World Policy on Air. Now back to Dutch election geography expert Jose de Vogt. The Eastern European countries show the most violent party landscapes, you write, as we've seen most dramatically in Ukraine. But talk about the situation in places like Poland, Hungary, Romania, Lithuania. Yeah, what we see in all these countries is um, these uh, are very young democracies. Uh, party loyalties are not so old like in, uh, in the western part of Europe. So uh, yeah, people are very volatile uh, in their uh, voting behavior. They just uh, go from one side to the other side. And um, For example, in Poland and uh, Hungary, these countries were governed by a social democratic party uh, some years ago. And yeah, after that government uh, collapsed, uh, these both parties... Uh, diminish it to a few uh, percentage votes, uh, votes uh, at the elections. Uh, and new parties are coming up very fast and even fade away. But we also see a lot of very stable patterns. That, uh, For example, Hungary, that's a country that has been much larger in the past um, and came out uh, like a very small country at the end of the 20th century. Uh, we still see Hungarian minorities living in neighboring countries like Slovakia, um, Serbia, Ukraine, and uh, also in Romania. And we see these uh, people voting massively on their own regional party that are advocating uh, minority rights. And we see the same in the Baltic states like Lithuania, um, that uh, there are large Russian minorities and they're also voting on uh, pro-Russian uh, minority parties. And patterns in the former Yugoslavia. Yeah, that's also uh, an interesting area. For example, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, which uh, is a very multicultural country that, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of left over between uh, when uh, Croatia and Serbia split uh, themselves up. And... Um, we still see now, uh, 20 years after the war, that in Bosnia, uh, people are still voting massively on uh, their own parties based on uh, their ethnic group. And they are not uh, moving to parties that just advocate uh, a rightist or a leftist political perspective. They are, uh, yeah, they still vote uh, on one party because they are Muslim or Serbian or a Croat. With the interest in the EU and the larger patterns of Europe, talk about cross-border patterns of uh, voting and, and support for right-wing populism and what you say are regional patterns, uh, something you call the Bible Belt. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing how um, very old borders in Europe that are sometimes centuries old, they, uh, they are still visible in today's uh, voting behavior. Even sometimes when a new party comes up, it reflects these old borders. 
Uh, for example, in the Netherlands, we uh, have a Bible Belt. That's uh, a small strip of land running from southwest to the northeastern part of the Netherlands, where people are voting massively on uh, very uh, orthodox Protestant uh, Christian parties. Um, and immediately to, immediately to the south of this uh, strip, people are voting heavily on uh, very populist parties, both on the right and left. And the interesting thing is that this, uh, this strip is more or less similar to a border um, a few centuries ago between a part of the Netherlands that was occupied by Spain and uh, that became heavily Catholic and a part that, uh, that became independent and became Protestant. And uh, now, yeah, when the country is united, and it's still centuries ago, we, we see this difference. And when we walk from one village to another village, just a few kilometers away, uh, the voting behavior is completely different. Um, so we see uh, similar patterns, for example, in Poland. That was uh, The country was moved westwards after the Second World War. Um, but the old border between uh, the old Poland and the part that was uh, taken away from Germany is also still visible in today's voting behavior. Um, the old Poland votes uh, very conservative on social issues, but quite leftist on economic issues. And in the western part, that uh, the part that was taken away from Germany, it's just the other way around. And also the conflict in Ukraine comes down to these kinds of centuries old borders that... Uh, the part that is pro-Western has been part of uh, Poland and Lithuania in the past, and uh, the Russia-oriented areas were not. Let's stay so, on the topic of, of Ukraine. You say it may be a good example of Europe discovering the natural boundaries to its eastward expansion. Talk about that. Yeah, um, now we've seen the European Union moving uh, eastward and further and further, and um, now, there was discussion about uh, Ukraine taking part in the European Union or not. Um, well, the, the further east you go, uh, the more difficult uh, will be the question, where are the borders of Europe? Um, it's not very clear, like, this country is pro-Western, this country is pro-Eastern, because these, uh, these conflicts are just running straight through different countries. Um, the eastern part of Ukraine is very pro-Russian, and their economies are very well connected. So um, if Ukraine joins the European Union or even the Schengen Treaty, which means that you can travel uh, without passing the customs, um, then the, in, the borders within the European Union, Union will become less important. But at the same time, its outer border becomes more important. So um, connections between Russia and these Russia-oriented areas will be more difficult, and this area will become a peripheral region in Europe. So, um, yeah, the, the European Union is uh, there, finds uh, its limits, because uh, the people want to, to look the other way around. They want to look to Russia. And also the people within uh, the more traditional European countries, uh, they don't want the European Union to become larger. So. Uh, Probably the Ukraine won't become a member of uh, the EU. And this leads to something you call rebordering and its impact on migration. Talk about that. Yeah, what, the, uh, what I say about Ukraine, that uh, if, you, if one country joins the European Union or the Schengen Treaty, um, then the other border on the other side of this country becomes more important. So, for example, um, in the past, every country had its own immigration policy. 
but now uh, all these countries are working together. So the, the outer border uh, for the Netherlands is not the border of the Netherlands, but it is uh, the border between Spain and Morocco, and it, uh, it are the, the islands in Greece um, which uh, are protected uh, by the uh, uh, Greek Navy that uh, the immigrants are not uh, coming in. Uh, so, yeah, with every border that changes, uh, another border becomes more important. And uh, we see this, for example, in southern Spain. With uh, there is an exclave, it's called. It's a, it's like a small uh, Spanish town, but it is on the Moroccan coast. And we have we see the high fences there with immigrants uh, climbing uh, over it to enter the European Union. And that's actually also the border of the Netherlands. It's not only the border of Spain. To sum up, what does your study of changing political patterns tell you about how Europe's national leaders and European Union leaders can move forward more successfully on, on key social, economic, foreign policy fronts? Yeah, um, well, what I, I find in my study is how, um, how diversified is the European uh, electorate. Um, so, the, so many people are uh, feel discomforted by today's policies by uh, an ever-growing and integrating European Union. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of people do know how important uh, working together is in Europe. Um, but I think a lot of people are right in uh, their feeling that uh, the elites in the different European countries, that they are uh, a little bit... Uh, out of touch with the people, that they are extremely cosmopolitan, extremely globally oriented, um, that they, they don't understand anymore how people are thinking in small villages. They, uh, these politicians are uh, calling the benefits of the European Union out of a, a, a more elitarian perspective. Um, they are, for example, they say, uh, well, it's going to be more easier for students to study in another country, but it's just uh, a very small part of the population that actually benefits from this kind of things. So um, it's important just to convince people with, uh, which are lower educated uh, and don't have a very cosmopolitan uh, lifestyle that you, it's important to convince them why the European Union is important. So it's not... Uh, you don't have to agree with uh, the people voting on very Eurosceptic uh, right-wing populist parties, but at least you have to try to understand what are their opinions and their fears. And I think sometimes uh, the elites uh, are not very well in this. Yossi Devok, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Josie de Vok is an electoral geography researcher in the Netherlands with a background in anthropology, development studies, and international relations. Also featured in the winter 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on Putin power and the EU. Russia throws down the gauntlet on a political prisoner's cry from Crimea and a conversation between Portugal's liberal lion Mario Suarez and World Policy Journal editor David Adelman. Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with Alvin Y.H. Chung, visiting scholar at New York University's U.S. Asia Law Institute, about his article, The Melancholy of Hong Kong, on the inspiration and legacy of the Beijing-controlled island's umbrella revolution. 
World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>